Good morning. I'll begin by reading Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. This is the parable of the wedding feast. This is the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and his servants, uh, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. So that's Matthew 22, 1 to 14, famously known as the parable of the wedding feast. I've said this many times and I'll keep saying it and you'll get bored of it and I will never get bored of it. My wife is bored of it. All my friends are bored of it. But I'm going to say it again. The, the, uh, the, the, the sort of key to getting at this text or any biblical text in terms of what does it mean for me is first to put it in the context. We always have to read it in context. And what is the context of any biblical passage, you can give a single answer to that question. Any biblical passage, what is the context? The context is this, what God is doing at that time and place. So the context is not just the history or the cultural context or the geographical context or the historical context, but a theological view of the history, the geography, and the cultural context of all of those things. So the question to ask then is, what is God doing in the context when this, when this, uh, the context of this passage? So it's sort of a piece of literature in which one gospel writer has recorded a teaching moment in the ministry of Jesus, something that Jesus taught. And he may have taught it on more than one occasion. Luke also has a version of this, and there's some minor differences. So it's possible Jesus used this parable on more than one occasion. But here's sort of then the bare context. Not, not, not a big furry animal with claws, but the simple bare context. And that would be this, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the one promised in the Old Testament. And he has come now to his people, that is, to the Lord's people, to Israel. 
and he's in Jerusalem now, very close to the time of his death. And he's teaching Israel through these parables. So sort of this crisis moment in the life experience and in the ministry of Jesus. You see, for years, for decades, for centuries, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, has been expected and promised and looked forward to. And now he's here and he's on the sort of the very, the very cusp of the culmination of his ministry. In other words, he's only a few days from his crucifixion. And so it's, his ministry to the Jews is intensifying. And the pressure is intensifying. The opposition is intensifying. The urgency of his teaching is intensifying. And so in that context, he, gives, he teaches with this parable. He tells this remarkable story. And so the, the, the sort of the first thing, I'm not going to focus on this today, but, um, but the first thing that I want to point out is that this is actually a story about Israel itself. It's actually a historical uh, sort of account. It's not a moral lesson, first, first of all, but first of all, it's Jesus talking to Israel about, what it, about their history and about what is about to happen. And so he tells them, in fairly veiled terms, but it's really not that hidden. Matthew tells us the Jews get it. They know he's talking about them. So they are the, in the story, they are the first to be invited to the wedding feast. They are the invited guests. They are the ones um, in a historical sense uh, for whom all the table is set. The places are set. The animals are slaughtered. You know how you know, we always slaughter uh, animals when we're going to invite people over, you know, but they, that's the way it used to be. But in this case, the whole thing is set for Israel. And when the banquet is ready, Paul will say in the fullness of time, the invitation is sent out and the invitation begins the invitation to the banquet in the fullness of time begins, you could say, with the ministry of John the Baptist, who will point with his finger. He has the privilege of all the priests and prophets of Israel of pointing with his own finger to the fulfillment of promise in the flesh and saying, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's so key there in his ministry that he doesn't say there is the Lamb of Israel or there is the Lamb of Moses or there is only the Lion of Judah, but even grander than that, that he is the one who takes away the sins of the world. So when he speaks that way, he's speaking about not only the fulfillment, not only the hope of Israel, but the hope of the world in Israel. And so it has that climactic, uh, that climactic thrust to it, that power uh, of bringing all of biblical history and all of redemptive expectation together in that pointing of the finger of John the Baptist to Jesus. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' ministry to the Jews there is, 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 uh, is intensifying as he reaches that climactic moment of his, of his ministry. And you remember there's, there's, an interesting, uh, there's an interesting sort of focus in Jesus' instructions to his apostles. 
And that'll give us some context for understanding what he's doing. Jesus knows himself to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But his ministry is not first to the world, but as Paul will say many times, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. What does that mean? First of all, it's just chronological. It's just historical. That Jesus comes first to Israel and to the Jews. And through them, the gospel will go out to all the world. And that's really what this parable is about. So Jesus is telling the Jews that they are the first to be invited and he's warning them that they will reject him. And through their rejection, through their their negligence, through their indifference, even through their repeated, their history of violent opposition to the invitation of God, Through their hardness of heart, the Lord will accomplish his own purposes of calling all the world to the throne of grace in the name of the Son. So Jesus will tell his his apostles, he'll he'll say this amazing thing to them way back in chapter 10, go only to the lost sheep of Israel because his ministry there is still to Israel until he is crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day raised, and then he says, now go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus here, in this, in this when, we're, when we're in Matthew 22, he's still, uh, he's still the Messiah to Israel. He's still sort of the last prophet to Israel, calling Israel to repentance. And there's, there's, a, bit of, there's a bit of pain and frustration for Jesus. Uh, how I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, right? He, th- there's, there's, there's pain, there's, there's disappointment in the voice, in the ministry, in the heart of Jesus because he knows his people will turn away. His own knew him not. There was no room for him in Israel. You know, he he was born in a barn. They wouldn't even give him a bed. Paul, too, will share the same regret and pain in his heart when he says that Even, he says, I myself wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers according to the flesh. His heart yearns for the salvation of Israel because he knows God has worked with them and called them and invited them since the time of Moses, since the time of Abraham. But their hardness of heart will really be at the crossroads and it will bring about the crucifixion of Christ and the salvation uh, of God to all the world. So that's sort of the main, that's sort of the, the, the context here at this point in terms of what is God doing right now when this parable is taught? He is trying to bring Israel to repentance. He's calling to Israel. It's kind of, kind of a last warning to Israel. Actually, in a way, he knows Israel will turn away. As a people, they will turn away. But as Paul says, are all the Jews lost? No, I myself, Paul will say, am a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, you know, a, a, a Jew of Jew, an Israelite of, of Israelites, blameless before the law. 
so not all. But really what Jesus is doing here actually is he's, he's calling Israel, he's calling each and every Jew to be a part of the global people of God. For them to say, circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. Born of Abraham, not born of Abraham, doesn't matter because God can make from these rocks children of Abraham. And so he's inviting Israel to, 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 to join each and every one to repent of his or her sins and join in the global multi-ethnic body of Christ. That, that is the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what this story really is about. It's about a history of the hardness of the hearts of Israel and they're not exceptional in that regard. It's just God's attention is focused on them. And it's about that history of their, their hardness of heart and their rejection in order to highlight the grace and the lowliness of Christ as he comes to his people to obey in their place for them and to conquer death for them, to emerge from the grave righteous for them and for all the world. So that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the historical context. I think, I, think, I think very often we lose track of the fact that Jesus is uh, not, not just an encourager, um, not just a motivator, but he understands himself to be the Messiah of Israel. And I think it's very important for us to get into that, uh, that focus, that historical moment for Jesus in order then to understand how his teaching uh, includes us as the historical extension of the New Testament church. But now let's, let's look at it, let's take a little bit of a step back. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna move away a little bit from that historical context now that we kind of have that settled. And I wanna just reflect for a moment on the fact that Jesus teaches in parables. There are some places in the Gospels where Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. But, but think of it this way, Jesus is the author of salvation. I don't know if you've ever been taught by the author of the book. I teach my students, but I don't assign my own books. What a disaster that would be. I, I assign books by the great teachers of the history of the church. And then I do my best to help my students understand those books. I work as hard as I can to convey my understanding of those books, but we're all under the surpassing tutelage of those books, and even those books are just guides to the scripture, and even the scripture is just a guide to the unsearchable glory of God. The scripture is like that finger of the Baptist extended to draw our attention to a reality that exceeds our language. It surpasses understanding. It is a peace that we experience, that we can touch, but God had to give us words so that we can describe it. It's an experience of peace and deliverance, of renewal, 
of divine love that surpasses understanding and surpasses human expression. And so he has given us a book so that we can speak about it in words guaranteed by God so that we can think about it and teach it to our children and speak to each other about it and encourage each other in the words that God has given. And here is the author of those words. Not a witness to what God has done. But the man from heaven himself who was in the room when the plans were made. Whose infinite and perfect mind devised the creation itself and the work of salvation that he himself has come to achieve. I was doing some research recently, believe it or not. It's okay if you don't, even if you think it's a fake story. I think sometimes pastors tell kind of fake stories, you know, about the little kid who looked up at me and said something amazing. I I, sometimes I worry that some of those are a little bit you know, exaggerated. Um, I won't name names, but this is not exaggeration. This is a true story. I was doing some research recently into Confucianism, and I was uh, reading uh, an amazing book about Confucianism. Obviously, I don't read Chinese, so I was reading in English, and I was reading a book by one of the most important uh, English-speaking scholars of Confucianism. Um, and in a moment of weakness, I Googled the dude to see what's he up to these days. It turns out he lives here in Korea. And I was super excited to find that out. I thought, my first thought was, I am going to have lunch with this guy and ask him all my questions. And I really, truly almost emailed him. And I stopped myself for two reasons. Uh, one of which is it would be so far of a, of a trip. It would probably take me three hours to get there from where I live. Aside from that, really my humility kicked in and I thought, I am going to write an email to a guy who travels the globe teaching about Confucianism in English and in Chinese in all the great universities of the United States and in Europe and in China. And I'm going to ask him if I can buy him a Quiznos sandwich and ask him my uninformed, embarrassing questions. What a waste of his time. I don't even have the, the sense of my... So I toss the whole plan and I'll just live with the happy thought that he's right up the road. I just thought, how dare I bother this? You see the point. You see, you, see, you see the point here. The eternal son of God teaches in stories. He addresses us according to our lowly nature. He tells stories about things we know, about kings and banquets and weddings and feasts, abundant feasts of good tasting food, of well prepared food, of luxuriously sort of laid out tables and dining halls, of an invitation to the palace of the king. I don't know who's out there, but I bet none of you will be invited to a palace for the wedding feast of the prince. Because we know the majesty is the things of fairy tales and stories. 
The allure is familiar to us. The majesty is something of our imagination. It is our folklore. And Jesus comes to convey these things as to children that we can enter into the rich truth and goodness of what God has done by the simple exercise of listening like a child. It's just a little taste of the humility of Jesus that he not only has come down to die when we don't even understand the magnitude of moral offense against a holy God, but he comes to explain it to our stupid, our dull hearts in stories a child can understand. The author of creation sits and tells stories to children. Now think about this. It's not only a waste of his time to come down from the majesty on high to speak to people who can't understand, but it's an insult to his glory. He's speaking not only to the dull, but to the wicked. He's gonna tell this story to people who in their hearts hate his justice and his holiness and they will kill him. You see the, 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 the shocking dissonance here between the humility of Jesus and the intensifying hatred. The more humble he is, the closer he approaches to the people, dear to his heart, the more, the, the, the greater their animosity, the quieter his voice, the humbler his invitation, the closer his approach, the more their resentment is agitated. He will stand before the judge and protest not. He will be as quiet as a lamb before a slaughter. This is the humble Christ. What perfect, what unspeakably perfect love is this? I think that I privately, silently, count every sacrifice I make for my wife and my family. Because when I'm offended, when I don't get what I want, I think, aren't they grateful for what I've done? My mind goes to a, to a, a glorious account of how much I've done for other people of how tired I am because I got up before you did and I prepared this for you. And you don't know, but I wanted to, but I didn't. And so I did this for you instead. And how ungrateful you are. Those are the selfish stirrings of my heart. 
We see none of that in the humble perfection of Christ. And that he patiently and quietly teaches in winsome stories about his grace and his love to people who will literally hate him to death. And he won't utter a word. He will pray for them as the light in his eyes grows dim and he breathes his last, he will pray for those who have killed him. That is the spirit of, that is the grace of God. There's, a, there's so much to say about this parable. But that, that, that it, but that is really the theme of it. Think about it. We focus on, oh, they didn't accept the invitation. Oh, he got so angry and destroyed. Wow, that's a sort of a rash response. Oh, and then he invited other people. Who, and then what's the guy do? How did the guy get in without a garment? Why is he so grumpy that he's not dressed for the way? I thought he was kind of a, kind of a, I thought the requirements were low. His tie is too short and he can't stay for the, what's this about? He's, ha- he's inviting them to a feast in his palace, you see. This son who will be glorified in the presence of many lacks no glory. He's the eternal, unchanging God. He is perfection of perfection, God of gods, light of light. He is the source of all things. He receives nothing, lacks nothing. But God will glorify his son. Do you see, he can't be more glorified than he already is. But God will glorify him. Notice this. God will glorify, already it makes no sense. So what's he up to? How can he glorify the all-glorious one? He's going to do it by bringing him together in a bond of marriage with the creature Do you see how unintelligible this is without a notion of grace? The creature has no claim and no right. He owes his every breath to the upholding by the word of his power, by the very indwelling of the Logos of God. Christ is already there, but he will bring them even closer to himself. And that will be the glory of the Son. The glory of the sun is redundant, excessive, almost meaningless, except that we enjoy it. Notice as well how the Lord portrays himself in this parable. He's invited guests. He's prepared. He describes in detail the preparations. Just like when I have a party at my house, he slaughtered animals. Kidding, I slaughter no animals. But he, he describes in detail all the wealth and riches of enjoyment that he's promised to his people. Everything that he's prepared is described there with one important missing detail. There is no one to accept his invitation. It's not only that he set the table and no one showed up. He set the table. He adore- it's, it's a wondrous thing. It's a, it's a, it's a Amazing display of wealth and generosity. It's not that no one has come. It's that they were invited, 
and they scorn the invitation. Even on a much lower scale, have you ever had the same experience? Had your invitation rejected? Prepared to have people come to your home or, or so, and, and it's scorned or disregarded, rejected. Your invitation garners no enthusiasm or excitement. That's embarrassing, it's disappointing. It's humiliating, it's discouraging. Personally, you feel a little bit demeaned. The Lord is not ashamed to present himself to his people who will reject him as one whose invitation is disregarded. It's not a flattering image that he paints of himself. You see, the gods of the ancient Near Eastern religions didn't beg people to come to their feasts in the afterlife. They were fierce. They were fearsome. They were powerful. They were violent. This God is humble and lowly. And he almost begs for the proud to humbly accept and come and enjoy. See, there's a sense in which God himself is giving himself here. The kingdom, the entire kingdom, Jesus is portrayed as the humility and the grace of God, the self-lowering of God. He comes to a people proud and wicked. He comes to a people self-assured, with chins high, their noses in the air, walking proud in their doom. And he humbles himself and he makes himself low that what is weak will conquer what is strong. That the simple humility and the weakness of God will outdo the strength and the wisdom of men. This simple gospel is this that you would hear, that we would hear that the proud would hear and be humbled. There is no other God. There is no other invitation. There is no other hope but that of this majestic feast, this abundant feast and enjoyment in the heavens extended to us by the humble hand of a God who will give his life to bring us home. This story shows us the hardness of the hearts of Israel. It shows us the wickedness, the hidden wickedness of indifference. It shows us the perfection of the kingdom that unless you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that all those in the palace of God in the new heavens and the new earth are perfectly dressed and made new. They are wearing the white robes of the resurrected Lord, washed clean, 
and free from sin. But it shows us most of all, really the essence of the ministry of Jesus, that he has come humble, lowly, riding on a donkey to give his life for the sins of many. The mastery of this story is that you hear it and you get it, but you don't even know you get it yet. You think, oh, I'm invited. I'm invited to the palace of the king. I, you know, and, and I better grab it because those poor guys didn't even realize, they don't even realize what they're missing. Right? They rejected this opportunity. I'm going to take it now. And so that... It, it, it sort of catches you by surprise because you find yourself saying, this is an opportunity I shouldn't miss. And slowly we grow into the story to see, wait a second, I am invited to glorify the Son in the banquet house of God, in the party of all parties, to enjoy all the goodness of the earth. Well, on my own strength, I have no business being there. This is an invitation to the proud. It's an invitation to the wicked for us to look on our Christ and see what he has done. To see not only the wickedness of our hearts, the ugliness of our sins, our desperation before the throne of God, our hopelessness before judgment. But the purity of Christ, his perfect obedience, his humility, his love, his faithfulness to God the Father that will not bend even as he faces death on a cross, he is faithful, loyal, humble, obedient. He is the perfect man unto the end. That righteousness is counted ours. There is no sin too great for the death of this perfect man. And there is no hope on this earth that compares to the resurrection of the Christ. This is the gospel of the grace of God. It calls the wicked to be humbled and to walk before him and be blameless by the power of the spirit and the righteousness that he gives while we are still sinners. This is the gospel. Repent, believe, and be saved. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that your son has been so humble. A humility we can only begin to understand that gives a peace that surpasses understanding. We pray that this truth would set us free, that we could walk today in newness of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.